Shalom, and welcome to Israel Policy Pod. I'm Evan Gottesman. I'm Michael Capo. Hi, Shira Efron. Today, we have an important episode. I was going to say that we have a very special episode today, but every episode of this podcast is special, although we did have some significant news at Israel Policy Forum. Uh, earlier this week, we released a new policy study uh, called The New Normal that each of us were co-authors on. And this study covers uh, the impact of Arab-Israeli normalization as embodied through things like the Abraham Accords on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And we asked the question uh, whether, and if so, how, the normalization that has taken place in the past year can be leveraged for progress on the Israeli-Palestinian track and toward a two-state solution. So to that end, we have six recommendations that we're going to go over in today's podcast. So to kick those off, I'm going to pass the mic to Michael uh, to go over our first two recommendations on this study. Thanks, Evan. Uh, and it's funny doing this as a podcast. I got so used to seeing both of you last week when, when we were doing this in person, uh, which was itself strange because I don't think I'd seen either of you in uh, over a year and a half. So our first two recommendations uh, in, in a lot of ways are focused on the Israeli side of things. And the first is leveraging the popularity of normalization among Israelis to move the process forward and in particular move it forward in a way that will involve the Palestinians. We saw this happen actually when the Abraham Accords were first kicked off, where the Emiratis said to the Israelis and said it quite publicly in, in the form of an op-ed in Yediot Ahronot by the Emirati ambassador to the U.S., Yusuf Aloteba, said, listen, you guys are about to, you Israelis, you're about to embark on annexation. If you do that, then normalization will be impossible. Whereas if you temporarily halt annexation, we can move forward with normalization. And what we saw was that in Israel, overwhelmingly, that wasn't actually seen as a real choice. Normalization was very popular and annexation was not. And so it proceeded. And Going forward, if other states are going to normalize relations with Israel, this is a formula that could work again. Um, Not that we're suggesting that uh, other states should hold out for a final status peace agreement between Israel and the Palestinians, but if there are productive steps that other states want Israel to take, or if there are things that Israel is contemplating that other states want to prevent, this formula of normalization in return for Israel taking some political moves that uh, create progress in the Israeli-Palestinian arena is a model that's already been established and it works because of normalization's popularity inside of Israel. The second recommendation follows from that and it is leveraging Saudi Arabia as the big prize. For Israel, Saudi Arabia really is the big get. If If there's one country that Israel wants to normalize with above all others, it is Saudi Arabia, given Saudi Arabia's importance in all sorts of ways. It's it's importance uh, in terms of being the traditional uh, leading leading state uh, in the Arab Middle East, its its role among uh, Sunni states, its role in Islam, uh, 
for all sorts of reasons, Saudi Arabia is, is the big prize for Israel. And uh, in our estimation, Saudi Arabia is in a position to um, request that Israel take relatively far-reaching political moves in return for political moves from Saudi Arabia. And the prize of Saudi Arabia is probably the one thing that could get Israel to take some of these far-reaching political moves, whether it be redesignating some of Area C to Area B, or uh, whether it be coming up with a real uh, and permanent solution to evictions and demolitions of, of Palestinian homes in Area C and East Jerusalem. You know, there are things that Israel is going to be very reluctant to do, but uh, Saudi Arabia being the, the big brass ring that, that's out there for Israel, um, that may be the one country that is in a position to affect some really uh, long, uh, really, really long reaching changes uh, in Israeli policy. And so uh, using that and combined with the fact that normalization with Saudi Arabia would be so popular is a way to try and um, combine normalization with progress on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Of course, it isn't only Saudi Arabia that is an important player here. Um, there are uh, there are other countries that uh, have already normalized with Israel that can play a large role. And for that, I'll, I'll turn to Shira to talk about uh, some of the countries that uh, that can impact change uh, within Israel and, and create progress on the Israeli-Palestinian front that actually already have these relationships with Israel. Yeah, thank you, Michael. Um, I think it is you know, interesting if we look at the countries that have recently normalized uh, ties with Israel and the previous one, I'll start with the most uh, recent ones. Perhaps the United Arab Emirates, um, more than any other country, has greater economic um, ability to maybe be involved in supporting humanitarian development and other projects in Gaza and get more involved there economically. And I think the need for greater involvement of actors um, who are strategically more aligned with Israel and with the United States, by the way, um, and do not support terrorist organizations uh, needed in Gaza, it was really highlighted uh, in the recent round of fighting between Israel and Hamas in uh, the month of May, so just a few months ago. Um, what we've heard and I think against the expectation, a lot of Israelis that thought that thanks to the normalization, uh, the Emiratis would jump in and substitute Qatar as the main source of funding uh, for Gaza, bringing other Arab countries with them, uh, is that Emiratis were really, uh, how they are resistant to uh, greater involvement in Gaza for a variety of reasons. Um, they do not support, you know, Hamas, they see it as a terrorist uh, organization. They would like to wall off their ties with Israel from their ties with the Palestinians. There are more practical reasons as well. However, if they are called upon um, as part of a bigger strategy for Gaza, where they would help with the political capital and with the funding, but Egypt will take the lead, then it's a different story. And Doing that would help direct involvement in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict because hopefully it would lead to greater stability. But it also would show uh, tangible benefits for the Palestinians uh, resulting from the normalization agreement, which is uh, substantially missing now. 
Um, and maybe the second recommendation in that regard, uh, building on that, we mentioned Egypt. Really interestingly, the normalization agreements, that was not their primary objective, right? The idea is to bring more countries into the circle of countries with diplomatic official ties with Israel in the region, um, but unexpectedly created, uh, it pushed Jordan and Egypt, obviously countries that have had peace with Israel for a much longer time, um, to be more public about their ties um, and advance and expand and deepen their relationship with Israel. Uh, Michael, you said it, I thought it was really funny, the FOMO, the fear of missing out. Um, it was interesting, I've heard from Egyptian officials that the United Arab Emirates getting all this credit for having Jewish institutions and interfaith uh, initiatives. And Egyptians were, said, were telling me privately, uh, well, you know what? We, we CC just renovated Jewish quarters of Cairo, but no one knows about it. We want to get some piece of that also. Of course, it helped a lot that there's also a new government in Israel, which which helped uh, make this shift. But the idea is that is you know Egypt and Jordan because they're bordering Palestinians. There's population, uh, especially with Jordan, right? Um, uh, Palestinian population, the refugee issue. Those are countries that cannot uh, and do not want to wall off their ties with Israel from their ties with the Palestinians. It's all connected. But here's an opportunity to tie the broader normalization with those two countries that are here and uh, lead to a positive change on the Israeli-Palestinian front as well. Um, And, you know, we have two more recommendations. Maybe I'll pass it on to Evan uh, for talking about those two. Thanks, Shira. So bringing this all together, we have two more recommendations, as you mentioned, and those are involving the Palestinians in the normalization process and then letting the normalizing states take credit for any achievements that come alongside this process. So I'll start with involving the Palestinians. Now, it's no secret to anyone that the Palestinians weren't exactly thrilled about normalization. And, uh, you know, you could say understandably so that you saw this as kind of a betrayal of the Arab peace initiative and the previous framework of Israel-Arab state relations, which was that normalization would only come after uh, there was a two-state outcome. At the same time, you could say that this maybe was an outdated or outmoded view of relations between Israel and the different Arab states of the region, because a number of them had very deep back-channel ties, and this was more bringing things into the public view that already existed. Uh, And now that normalization has taken off, I think it's a question of when and not if more countries join this process. So it would be better if there were a way in which it could uh, involve the Palestinians than uh, if not. and of course, the Palestinian reaction, uh, there, there was a spectrum of reactions ranging from the most severe, uh, withdrawing their ambassadors from the UAE and Bahrain, uh, to less severe. And I don't think you're necessarily going to get enthusiastic welcome uh, for uh, more normalization. But uh, you could try things that would involve the Palestinians in this process somewhat. Things like trying to pass on some of the economic benefits Uh, creating a free trade zone in the Jordan Valley uh, through which the Palestinians might uh, be able to export products to normalizing states. Um, 
things like passing on some of the benefits of new tourism, especially religious tourism from these Arab states to the Palestinians um, who, again, might be now visiting Israel and the West Bank, and some of the uh, ideas and policies that uh, we spoke about earlier in this podcast, things that would involve uh, extending uh, Palestinian control in the West Bank, shifting uh, parts of Area C to uh, uh, be part of Area B and Area A, and as Michael was mentioning earlier, perhaps halting or, or, or limiting demolitions in Area C. None of these are a substitute for a final and, and definitive uh, political process, uh, but they are things that can be done, again, in tandem with normalization, um, and that might engender the Palestinians to uh, view this in a little bit of more positive light. And this kind of goes hand-in-hand with our last recommendation, which is to allow normalizing states to take credit for any kind of achievements like this that happen under uh, under this normalization process. And the significance of that is, while, again, I think our, our conclusion is that future normalization is a matter of when and not if, the fact remains that many Arab countries, the majority of Arab countries, still don't have relations with Israel. And, you know, if you look back to 2020, at the end of the Trump administration's term, there was talk coming from then-President Trump that there were 10 more Arab countries just waiting in the wings to normalize. Well, clearly that hasn't materialized, and and there are a whole host of reasons for that uh, that we could get into when we do get into in the study. Um, But normalization is still not particularly popular in a lot of these countries. Again, the, the public opinion varies by country. There are nuances to it, but it's generally unpopular. And allowing these countries to take credit for some of these achievements uh, can perhaps ease that process and make normalization an easier pill to swallow. Um, now, I have to say here, and it's something that we can discuss, that Outside of these six recommendations, there's also kind of one overarching recommendation or or, or theme to each of these, which is this is a process that is going to require U.S. inducement because it's essentially changing what the Abraham Accords were about under the previous administration, which was separating out uh, relations between the Arab states with Israel and relations between the Arab states with the Palestinians. And I think this may be a good segue uh, if we want to briefly go over some of the challenges uh, in front of these recommendations, which was another big theme of the study. Uh, Michael, uh, maybe you could tease out some of the other obstacles that are in the way of these recommendations. So nobody should be under the impression that including uh, including progress on the Israeli-Palestinian front in normalization will be easy. Or even, frankly, that uh, that further normalization itself will be easy. Uh, there are a number of obstacles. Uh, you know, from the Israeli side, they are very happy, I think, to have normalization proceed and keep it walled off from the Israeli-Palestinian issue. And it's understandable why why Israel would want to do that. From the current normalizers' perspective, they wanted to have 
these bilateral relations with Israel. And um, the whole underlying logic, I think, behind the Trump-led normalization process was to create these bilateral relationships without any real regard to the Palestinian angle. And uh, I don't see a whole lot of evidence that the UAE or, or Bahrain wants to have their bilateral relationships with Israel in any way um, conditioned on progress on, on the Palestinian front. When it comes to future normalizers, the model that the Trump administration set up was normalize with Israel and you will get uh, a big policy giveaway from the United States that has nothing to do with normalization and that in, uh, I, I would argue perhaps in all cases, didn't make sense for the United States. Now, that's not a model that the Biden administration is going to pursue. If you are Indonesia or Malaysia and you are being pressured to normalize relations with Israel from the United States, it's not really a pressing issue for you right now. And you're probably better off waiting until 2025 to see if there is a different president who will give you something really big, um, which is what the UAE got and, and what Morocco got and what Sudan got. So, you know, there are a lot of obstacles. Um, and if this is going to move, and I didn't even mention the Palestinians, I should, I should mention them, you know, they are still uh, pretty hostile to the normalization process because they view it as having left them behind and as having completely imploded the Arab peace initiative model whereby normalization only comes after a final status peace agreement between Israel and the Palestinians. So this isn't going to be easy. There are a lot of obstacles, and it really is worth stressing that for any of this to work, it's going to have to involve uh, the United States in a deep way. The United States is the only country, I think, that can really shepherd this process along and not only get more countries on board, but also do it in a way where the Israeli-Palestinian angle isn't ignored or deliberately set aside, which is which is what the Trump administration did. So, you know, as you as you mentioned before, Evan, normalization, more normalization, is probably a matter of when rather than if. But you know, I, I don't see a lot of evidence that there are four, five, six, ten countries out there that are on the cusp of normalizing without uh, somebody really overseeing the process in a robust way. And as I said, that has to be the United States. Yeah, I mean, I agree with Michael. And I think really Michael's last point is probably the most important one. Um, it's true that it's a matter of, it's, it's, it's a when and not an if. And you could arguably, arguably say that normalization between uh, Israel and the UAE and Bahrain and the reinstituting of diplomatic ties with Morocco were also a matter of time because we, we know normalization didn't occur overnight, right? There were all these, uh, there were back channels and there was, there was like tiny steps off normalization with Israeli athletes and musicians and other uh, visiting um not to mention very significant uh, ties under the radar. Um, however, this normalization wouldn't wouldn't have occurred and wouldn't have occurred in the, the pace that it did without very strong U.S. involvement. And as Michael said, we're not endorsing this type of transactional nature with the U.S., but only the United States can make this happen. Um, 
and they can, what we are offering here is a way to do it, keep continuing to, to advance normalization with, which, with all the visits, with the visits we're seeing in Washington, D.C. and the events uh, uh, for the anniversary of normalization, we're seeing that the Biden administration um, seems that they seem that they want to do it. They're saying the right things. They want to uh, advance normalizations, but they also want to uh, keep the door open for Israeli, for a two-state solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict um, and advance steps for maintaining uh, stability and repairing ties with the Palestinians, this this seems to be. Uh, we we hope that the recommendations that we outline here uh, provide a concrete roadmap for doing those things, uh, marrying the two, and allowing you know the Biden administration to put their own stamp um, on the next step of this process, but without real serious, fully staffed, dedicated with. Uh, directives and, and authority, um, I don't think this can happen. You both raise a number of compelling and salient uh, points about what stands in the way of the recommendations that we laid out. And I would encourage everyone to take the time to check out the study itself, which is now on our website, www.israelpolicyforum.org forward slash the new normal. And you can see all of the different uh, recommendations spelled out in more detail, and also the challenges uh, that we list there. Um, and judge for yourself uh, what is going to be able to be uh, affected and, and what is not. Now, though, we're going to turn to our regular Israel Policy Pod segments. Uh, the first segment we have is. Ask the Forum. Now, this is a new initiative uh, through which listeners like you can send questions related to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and all the other adjacent topics that we cover. And if you're lucky, your question might get answered on the episode. So today we have a question from Doug Pick, and that question is... Are there post-Abbas leaders more inclined to be proactive and pushing for a political process? So uh, any takers to jump on this one first? You know, I can try. It's very hard to speak of, about the, the succession on the Palestinian front. We know a lot of the players um, surrounding Abbas, but Abbas has a very unique hold on three positions, right? He's not just a president, he's also head of Fatah and head of the uh, PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization. Um, so he has authority that could be unmatched uh, uh, coming next. And in terms of who might gain power, it's very hard to know if those that are inclined to support a two-state solution um, Will rain or others will come in. Uh, I think there is less and less confidence, at least on the Israeli side, that post Abbas you will have leadership that might be more convenient for for Israel. Um, we know that Abbas is, uh, for better or worse, depending on what you think of that, but he's the one really opposing reconciliation with Hamas. Um, others believe that this is the only way Palestinian unity is, is needed and it has implications uh, for the type of government that would come next. 
arguably uh, Mahmoud Abbas's speech in the UN just this month, and we don't have time to get into, could make it harder for any Palestinian leader coming next um, to continue the the Oslo paradigm and the two-state solution pathway because it's basically admitting that this um, road has not led them to the statehood that they wanted. So I am not sure I would be optimistic on that. I don't know if Michael agrees or disagrees. I would add that I, I think the more I think the more important factor isn't necessarily who specifically comes after Abbas. I think um, the more important uh, variable is um, the sort of structural factors in terms of how things will unfold. Um, because anybody in the almost anybody in the upper reaches of the Palestinian Authority and the PLO and, and, and Fatah at the moment uh, supports a Palestinian state, and, and that means uh, a two-state a two-state outcome. But unless some sort of progress is made, uh, the Oslo process and and just the idea of two states is becoming less and less popular among Palestinians. And so there will be a strong incentive, I worry, if there is no progress on the Israeli-Palestinian front for whoever comes after Abbas to chart a different course. And I also worry that if the post-Abbas succession is not clear, if it ends up being contested, if there ends up being fighting, you know, in a worst case scenario, if it leads to Palestinian civil war, the incentives in that case are not to cooperate with Israel or to talk about two states. You know, the incentives are to be um, increasingly nationalistic and hawkish as a way of building up a popular base. So I, I do very much worry about what happens next. And uh, I think that, um, you know, if I were if I were the Israeli government, I would be working to shape that environment now so that whoever ends up succeeding Abbas, uh, the incentives are there to continue cooperation with Israel and continue on security and continue working toward two states and not to really um, blow, blow the entire process up. Just add here my own answer, and this may be something of a non-answer, but uh, I think it's important to consider what's going to happen after Mahmoud Abbas is off the scene. At the same time, uh, for as long as I've been at Israel Policy Forum, and I know that this conversation has been going on longer, but at least as far I can as at least as far as I can remember, in the past four plus years, people have been talking about all the time what's going to happen after Abbas, what's going to happen after Abbas, and Abbas is still there. Um, and no one lives forever, and he is 86 years old, uh, although his father, I think, lived to be over 100, uh, so that's something to keep in mind. Uh, but I think it's also important to, at the same time as we consider uh, the very real uh, and impending problem that comes with succession, uh, what can be achieved also with the leadership as it's currently constituted in the Palestinian Authority, um, and not to be immediately writing off Abbas, because uh, for several years people have been talking about Abbas as if he's already uh, no longer the leader and he remains there. So, uh, something to keep in mind. If you have a question that you want to hear answered on a future episode of Israel Policy Pod, you should send that question to us. And you can do that by
by emailing policypod at ipforum.org. We hope to get many more questions like Doug's question today, and uh, we look forward to looking at them and answering them on a future episode. Now for our final segment, we have the curation corner. This is where we talk about our favorite recent pieces by different journalists and commentators uh, relating to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and other topics that we cover here on the podcast. So Shira, I know that you had a piece that you had wanted to talk about from the New York Review of Books this uh, that you had read recently. Um, I Tell did read that. an article. It was actually in August, but it's such a good one that I highly recommend it. It's by Syed Geshua, um, one of Israel's probably best authors. Um, he's of Palestinian descent, uh, Israeli citizen. Um, and the article is titled My Palestinian Diaspora and was published in the New York Review of Books. And it's so interesting because Syed is a comedian and he had a regular column in Aritz. Um And he was always able to tell the story of what it means to be an Israeli Arab or uh, a Palestinian uh, citizen of Israel, but in a very humoristic way. And the interesting thing is that um, the the his I, I think for us and many many Israelis that have moved around and lived in the U.S., uh, his column in Arts sort of reflected the story of what it means to being to being an immigrant. He had the same dilemmas with the kids and 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 living in America and just how different it was from Israel. And in this article, it's for the first time he's explaining that for him, as a Palestinian in Israel, he felt like he was living under forced exile, both in his homeland um, as well as in the diaspora. Um, and it's just a beautiful essay, so I highly recommend it. Michael, how about you? So uh, I have, uh, I'll cheat, I have, I have two. <laughs> um, one is... Uh, a piece by IPF board member Martin Indyk in, uh, in this month's edition of Foreign Affairs. Um, and it, it builds off the, uh, the new book he has out about Henry Kissinger. But um, in this article in Foreign Affairs, he, he talks about Kissinger's quest for, for order rather than peace in, the, peace in the Middle East and the lessons that it has today. And uh, Martin has some interesting lessons in here, both about um, the danger of overreach and the danger of underreach. And in particular, you know, kind of the danger of underreach and aiming too low, um, you know, is something that uh, we've we've kind of danced around today uh, in terms of the U.S. role in in normalization and and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So, um, I would uh, I would encourage everybody uh, everybody to read Martin's uh, Martin's piece in Foreign Affairs uh, and think about how some of these lessons can can be applied today uh, within the contemporary Middle East. Uh, but the second one is actually something uh, something I, I, <laughs> I read this morning and it led me down a bit of a rabbit hole. Uh, there was an article today in Jewish Insider. This also relates to normalization. There was a, a, an article today in Jewish Insider about the Israeli pavilion taking place at uh, Expo 2020 in Dubai, which, you know, of course, uh, it's, it's no longer 2020, but it was a late year for the pandemic. And so uh, the Expo the Expo just opened. And at the very end of this write-up in Jewish Insider, it mentions that there was a sign at the entrance to the pavilion in something called uh, Aravrit script. 
um, that merges Hebrew and Arabic characters. So uh, I spent I spent a good thirty minutes this morning uh, googling and, and reading about Aravrit. Um, it's this it's this weird font uh, invented by uh, by a designer named uh, I hope I'm pronouncing her name correctly, Lirom Lavi Kirkenich, um, and it merges it merges Hebrew script and Arabic script. Um, and the reason it works, which is also something I, I did not realize before today, is that, uh, and, and I should have known this since, since I read both Hebrew and Arabic, um, you only need to see the bottom of the, the, the bottom half of Hebrew letters to be able to make out what they say. And you only need to, to be able to see the top half of Arabic letters to be able to make out what they say. And so if you, uh, if you merge the top half of a word being Arabic and the bottom half of a word being Hebrew, if you merge the, the letters together, you can actually make out in in each language what the word is saying, despite the fact that you don't quite have full letters for either of them. So um, if you go to aravrit.com, you can uh, a r a v r i t. Uh, you can you can check it out. Uh, it's kind of it's kind of funky. So uh, that's the, that, that's what I'm reading. And my recommendation would be a column that came out uh, last week uh, by Anshul Pfeffer in Haaretz. Uh, titled Jews should have the right to worship freely, but not in today's Jerusalem. And this filled uh, an interesting niche in the uh, commentary around the Temple Mount uh, for me, which is that when we talk about the Temple Mount and we talk about the status quo there, the the religious status quo, um, and essentially the idea that uh, Muslims pray at the Temple Mount or Haram al-Sharif, uh, for Muslims and non-Muslims visit. And this has been the principle undergirding this for a long time. Um, I think it's often treated as sacrosanct, and I think it's important that that standard be maintained um, And uh, for, for a number of reasons that we don't have to go into here that we talk about in a whole bunch of other materials, including resources from Israel Policy Forum. But uh, this article was the first one that I've seen uh, at least in a kind of liberal left context uh, that acknowledges that, frankly, that principle uh, is unfair. Um, and I'm not here advocating for, for it to be changed. I don't think it should be changed. And that's not the point of the article either. It's not an argument that it should be changed. But um, I think it's an important uh, angle on this topic, uh, which is unfortunately uh, coming back to the fore as that status quo uh, gets eroded uh, in Jerusalem. So it's something to keep an eye on, um, but also uh, an aspect of that uh, not to forget um, regarding uh, regarding the status quo. And finally, in terms of external articles to uh, recommend, this may be a bit of a cop-out, but I believe by the time this podcast is live, the three of us will also have an op-ed in the Hill covering many of the topics that we discussed today relating to normalization. So I would encourage everyone to check that out as well. Uh, that's all for today's episode. I want to encourage everyone again to check out the new study that we all co-authored, The New Normal. You can find that on Israel Policy Forum's website at www.israelpolicyforum.org forward slash the new normal. Uh, thanks for tuning in. Uh, stay safe, stay healthy, and we will see you soon.